everybody and welcome to podcast number 86. Today I have with me one of UK's most popular and in-demand comedians. He has performed successfully at events of all description, from the Hammersmith Apollo to a show for inmates of an Italian prison. His photo of him in a leotard is featured on an arts entertainment square on the board game Trivial Pursuits, the genius edition, of course. It's Martin Moore, everybody. Welcome, Martin. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. It's wonderful. And I can't even look at you without smiling all the time. You just have that um, aroma where people just look at you and smile. Now, you were actually... You were actually born in Northern Ireland into a circus family and had an early career as a juggler, unicyclist, knife thrower, fire eater and magician. So how young were you when you actually started performing? How how young was I when I was born? I was quite young. (laughs) I remember it very well. I was quite young. So I've always um, I've always I've always been around this sort of stuff when I um. When I was a little kid, I worked on the fair. I was one of the, I was literally the kid that did that scream if you want to go faster. Right. I, I worked on the waltzers and I operated the waltzers. And you know that cliche joke about the fairground that they go scream if you want to go faster. I was literally, I was that kid. God. And my, my first ever paid job was I was 14 years old and I jumped a car on roller skates as a paid promotion. It was a toy shop that was starting to sell what what would have been rollerblades they, they were an early version of rollerblades and uh, it just never took off for the guy he never it never worked and um it was a brilliant idea that then became a world a worldwide fashion but he paid me 20 quid uh to jump over a car as a as a publicity stunt oh, amazing um but then you had an accident in the big top and you shattered your ankle and you were actually forced to retire from performing um, as a tall unicycle basketball juggling act. And you became a stand-up comedian then. But you did go to clown school. So why wasn't it easy for you just to, oh, I'll go to clown school and become a, a clown? Oh, so what, what happened was I was disillusioned, Elaine. It was with this thing. I'd worked for a, a long time, for years and years, and this was the big break this was like my big do i was i got to that level of that of being a professional performer i got to that point that i was about to do what i thought was my dream gig and it was going to be touring circus in uh, in europe all over europe and it was like the dream gig and then it all fell down i did clown training with um with Gaulier. so i did the Gaulier clown training and i was doing comedy in the circus and so my my the last act that I was working on, the the big show, was a comedy circus show. But it was that thing that it was just on the cusp of going off on this dream job and then broke an ankle and couldn't do it anymore. And then I discovered comedy and it was like a real breath of fresh air because previously my act involved um, an eight-foot unicycle, an eight-foot ladder, basketballs, a basketball reg it took a little van to take this anywhere and then when you could go to comedy clubs and it was just a notebook and you just had to talk, <laughs> it just seemed so nice and um yeah it was a real breath of fresh air for me as a performer as a comedian you actually joined other comedians raising money for save the children 
But being Martin, you decided to join a group and actually achieved a new record by performing the highest terrestrial stand-up gig um, following a show at um, the Everest Base Camp. You, with um, a few others and the audience, made a nine-day trek through the Himalayas to set up a show 5,365 metres above sea level. So tell me about that. Oh, so it was just lucky. Uh, exactly what happened was, uh, so this was 2016. So in about 2012, they had been talking, I think these dates are correct, that there had been talk that some people were going to go and do this. And I thought, oh, I wish they'd asked me. Oh, I wish I'd been asked to go and do that. That sounds fantastic. And then and there was that earthquake that happened in Nepal and uh, was terrible, a terrible earthquake. And so then um, then it came round again and some of the original people didn't want to do it anymore. And so they recruited new people to do it. But, but I thought it was a joke. So I was I was in Western Australia doing the Fringe World Festival in Perth. And it was the day after I'd helped an Australian comedian called Mickey D. And he was doing a double marathon. He was running an ultra marathon, a double marathon through the night. And I'd, I'd helped them do it. And me and a few other people helped them do it. And part of the thing I helped them do was run up this great big flight of stairs, which we did like um, oh, loads of times. We, we did it like 50 times or something. So we were doing all these stairs together and chatting and stuff. And the next day I had a text saying, do you want to go and do a gig? And I said, yes, please. And then uh, the promoter said, it's at Mount Everest Base Camp. And I thought it was a joke and ignored it. And then I saw Mickey later on that day when he had had a good sleep after his event. And he said, did you get a joke text about going to Everest? And I went, yeah, I did. And then it turned out that it wasn't a joke. And so myself, Mickey D, an Australian uh, comedian called uh, called Wayne, um, oh, I've forgotten his name. Wayne Deacon. Wayne Deacon, how can I forget his name? He's such a character as well. And Tom Wigglesworth, an English comedian. So we were the team and they got a whole audience involved. There was all sponsorship. And we hiked up and we did a show right beside the helipad on Everest Base Camp. So it's like right there, right up in the in the mountains. It's unbelievable. Fantastic, fantastic. But now we spoke earlier about your accident at the big top, but that's not the only time when you found yourself in a dangerous situation. I understand that you were actually trapped in a car after a high speed motorway crash, and you've also been shot at by a German for being English. Ah, you've been doing loads of research, haven't you? You've been doing loads of, of notes spying around. Yeah, so the, that thing of, um, yeah, so it's the thing about being a comedian, isn't it? That with being a comedian, we have the mindset that we can turn bad things into good things, isn't it? And it's kind of Buddhist, I think. It's that Buddhist thing that if you have the right attitude, even the worst thing can be a positive thing. So, for, for example, that car crash. So I was coming back. I'd been doing shows in the Falkland Islands. Mm -hmm. And I'd flown back. And it was a Saturday morning. I'd flown back into Bryce Norton, which is the RAF airport place and i um i was driving up rose on the on the what's that called that goes past oxford the m40 and uh driving along and i noticed everybody was in a rush and I, I wasn't in a rush and i was listening to something on the radio that i was enjoying and i thought oh i'm just gonna relax i'm not in a i'm not in any hurry i'll let all these people be in a rush and i was in the middle lane and i just thought i'll, I'll get into the inside lane and i'll just i'll just cruise along 
And the next thing I knew, the car was rolling over and somebody had pulled out in the middle lane and hit me. And my witness statement from somebody that pulled over and told the police said that, that the car flipped over in the air three times Gosh. and landed. It landed on its edge, so it was sideways on. And as I was trying to get out, I was trying to push the, the what was the roof, but it was the door, but it was now the roof. Yeah. I tried to push it up. I could hear a very panicked voice and the voice was saying, get out of the car, get out of the car. But I was fine. I was 100 percent fine. I didn't have a mark on me. And I, I was scrambling around looking for my mobile phone and I, I felt com completely fine. And uh, the voice was quite panicked. And when I pushed myself out of the car, uh, which is on its edge, mm. it was a policeman. It was a motorcycle policeman who had seen the incident and stopped. And so I said to him, because I was fine, I said, is this free parking or is it pay and display? <laughs> the guy just breathalyzed me straight away. He just he just couldn't believe it. And then the ambulance came and all the stuff happened and none of them could believe that I wasn't hurt. And I was going, oh no, just lucky. And then the um and then they said, oh, and the other guy isn't hurt either. And at this point, I didn't know there was another guy. I didn't know what had happened. And he was okay as well. So it was one of them. Two cars got squashed, mm. but nobody got hurt. And I went, it became an Edinburgh show. And it became an Edinburgh show because I told a, a comedy website, because so many people were asking if I was okay. Yeah. I told a comedy website that um, what had happened and that I was okay. And, and they put it in the world. And then my phone just ping, 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 ping. And it was just full of comedians going, there's your next year's Edinburgh show. It, that was the first thing before they'd even gone, are you okay? You tell me bogger, you've got an Edinburgh show. And it was, it became an Edinburgh show. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, you're superstitious, I understand. And you wear a threatening bit. Ah, no, that was a that was a device in a show. That ah. was, yes, so that was a device in a show. I'm not I'm not, I'm not superstitious at all. Um, <laughs> okay, Graham, would you like to ask Martin anything? Um, yeah, good good afternoon, Martin. What do you prefer? Do you prefer to in when you're performing? Do you prefer just to perform in front of people? Do you prefer to do circus, juggling, acrobats, comedy? show a stand-up show do you do you have any preferences or is it just about you as a performer in front of people mm, so i like the challenge of of all the different disciplines of it so i really like that but at the moment i'm very much enjoying the circus shows and i, I can i can tell you exactly why i suffer from a condition called jupiter's contracture and it's that thing, Bill Nighy, the um, the English actor has it. It's that thing when people's fingers curl up and um, it's known as Viking disease because it's people that were descended from the Vikings that have it. So my hands had curled up and it meant that I couldn't really juggle for a, for a long time. And so I thought that part of my career as a juggler, I thought that was over. And then I got three operations and now my hands are, are pretty good again and still a little bit like I, I don't have feeling in some of my fingers, but they're functional. And I, I currently have a circus double act that I'm performing with an Irish guy called Logie Logan. And we're going to tour it next year and it's called Circus Sonus. And we have an adult version which is called Dirty Tattooed Circus. And because I thought I was never getting to do that again, that's got a real le new lease of life for me. And how do you actually 
pr- approach a show. Hmm. In, in what way? So, do, so because you're a, a, someone whose background is is just in many disciplines, do you draw from the different disciplines for how you structure your performance and how you mentally get prepared for your performance? Hmm. So it's slightly yes. Good question, uh, Graham. It, it, it's slightly different. So with the circus performances, you have to warm up. You have to physically do a warm up, and you have to just do things like. You have to check where the lights are, because if you're juggling and the lights are right in your eyes, it, it doesn't work. So there, there's more of a technical side to it and more of a physical warm up. And then with the stand up shows and the um, the children's shows that I do on my own, which have do have circus in them, but less, less skills based circus. And uh, with those ones, I approach every single one like like it's a one off, like it's completely different because I, I think everything's got its own charm. And it's the trick of the performers to find what the charm is in any given performance. So, so you draw on different experiences, as you say, for the trick for the performance. You're drawing on um, different skills from different areas, and you look, but you're looking at the subject detail, aren't you, from each aspect? So, from let's say your clowning aspect, your acrobat aspect, you'll say these are the different elements that I can use in, let's say, in a stand-up comedy, because you're going to be looking at people's faces and waiting for that interaction. It doesn't matter whether you're juggling. You're looking, everyone's looking at you thinking, is he going to drop? And you're looking at them thinking, I'm going to make out, I'm going to do this, or juggling with fire. But is it, you know, do you go to that level of detail for every performance? Well, so, yes. So so the, the audience engagement is exactly the same. The necessity for audience engagement is is still the same. Uh, and especially in the style that I do. So if somebody but is, um, I don't know, an amazing Cirque du Soleil performer and they're up on a high wire and you can't really see them or they're doing trapeze and you can't really see their eyes. So they're performing in a different way, but the engagement with the audience is the same. Necessity, it's the same thing. So for me, I'm still doing all of the same techniques of engaging the audience and, and interacting with the audience in, in no matter what, what discipline it is, yeah. And do you enjoy that aspect, that the interaction? Oh, that's the only reason I'm there. That's the only reason. I think everything else are the tools that make that interaction happen. I, I, I think so commonly a juggler will think that when they throw the five objects into the air, they think that's the show. And, and I don't think that's the show at all. That's the excuse for the show. That the show's the other stuff that happens. Same with the stand-up. Stand-ups think that the that the show is when they're talking. And I don't think it is at all. I think it's when we're not talking. It's when the audience are laughing. That That's the show. So the things that happen in those moments are the most important things to me. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think that's from your childhood in the circus or where you really learn those core interaction interactive skills hmm. so definitely some of it's from experience a hundred percent but i really think that it's been analytical uh i think when i when i see stand-ups and and the thing that happens a lot with stand-ups is they will um they repeat the same thing over and over again like the same techniques and then they gradually go, oh, that didn't work. Oh, that did work. And they learn by standing on the stage, trial and error. And I don't really like that approach. I, I think, well, that's fine. That's fine if you're 20 years old and you've got your whole life to, ahead of you to work it out. But if you're trying to be professional and you're trying to 
get paid for it. You have to work it out quickly. So I, I really like being analytical about it and, and knowing why it didn't work and knowing why it would work, how I can make it work better. And the thing with stand-up in particular as such a pure performance form, where you never learn it at all. Every, every show you can do better. If anyone thinks they've done their best show, well, they might as well just give up because we nowhere near our best show. The next one might be the best show. <laughs> and um, it, when you're preparing for a show, it doesn't, I'll go back to that point. When you're preparing for a show, let's say you're preparing for an Edinburgh show. How mm. long does it actually take you, you know, from initial inception, from the idea to write it's fully developed and ready for Edinburgh? Mm. So it really changes. Uh, what used to happen quite a lot, I would write a show for Glasgow in March. So I would I would finish my Edinburgh show and I would tour that a little bit, usually in the UK in um, like this time of year, like the autumn, and then start thinking about the new show in the new year, have an hour in March. And then the idea was that was the hour that was going to go to Edinburgh. I don't think I ever did that. I always did the hour and then wrote a new hour for Edinburgh. Um, because something changed, something else happened, something something newer happened. And uh, the most recent one, I was only at Edinburgh for three days, but I had a show written for Edinburgh. I had an hour, one hour show. And then really, unfortunately, Sean Locke passed away. And I, I looked at Sean and I, um, so Sean was, uh, was on the circuit, when was on the comedy circuit when I was on the comedy circuit. And I looked at his, I looked at his videos and I just thought, there could be something more dangerous happening. I could do something more creative than this show that I've written. So I deliberately scrapped 40 minutes of my show. And that was just before, like immediately before Edinburgh. So I do try different approaches to it. I do try different things. One, one year, I wrote a show about um, that experience of doing the show at Everest Base Camp. So I completely swatted up on Everest. I read every book i watched every movie i listened to dv i listened to podcasts constantly and as a rule i deliberately didn't write any of it so the show had a structure because it was a linear journey it was a true life journey i deliberately never wrote a word of it down and i, tr I tried that approach so um it's the thing isn't it stand up we we can try different ways we can see what what happens yeah, but you, it's, it's not like winging it with you. As you said, it's an obsession to make sure you know every detail mm. and how to, how to interact with the audience to bring them out to say, so when you're going to say, oh, I was on Everest on the base camp and there I was, you know, 12,000 feet up on a little tent <laughs> hanging over the straight flat edge. Uh, but you can describe it in the detail that mm. people will be, because you're, you're very articulate, they will be absorbed. Mm. So that word, that thing winging it, I think yeah. people have a, a, a common mis, misunderstanding of what people mean when they say that. So quite often a, a good pro act will say, oh, I'm winging it. But they generally know where they're going with it. And the winging it part is maybe a new material night where they're trying it out. And I think newer acts think that the pro acts just get up and do something and they don't even know what they're doing. And how bored would you get? Like, who's got time if you're a pro act? Who's got time to do that? You know, we, we do go to new material nights and try things out. But I, I reckon most of the most of the good pro acts that they'll say, oh, I'm winging it as in it's not word perfect. But generally, they they're going to know a, a, an idea of where they're going. Mm -hmm. And and just obviously, you're a high energy person. Martin. Mm. 
I've, I've known you just for a short time, but it's very high energy, obviously high maintenance, and you you must be. So, what do you actually do to relax? Hmm. So I don't. I I, I don't <laughs> relax. So the the true story, uh, maybe a true boring story, is uh, about three years ago I discovered that I have ADHD, and the uh, it became apparent when this diagnosis came in. A lot of people that I know that work in that area and who maybe are people with ADHD themselves as always assumed that they they always assumed that, that I knew about it and I didn't know about it. And I've obviously developed these cope, coping mechanisms for it. But it's so useful to me because I, I haven't got time to relax. I, I don't want to relax. I don't need to relax. For me now, so I'm going to Liverpool tonight. I've got three jokes that have only been around for the last three weeks. So I've got three new bits of material i'm just dying to get on stage and do them so that's better than relaxing for me the the being on stage that's nurturing isn't it i've got i'm excited about material um that the jokes have really been working in all the other gigs it's a great little gig that i'm going to tonight so i'm really excited so that's kind of what i do for my relaxation is the performing it's um yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Martin, you actually write and support some of the top comedians in the country, but you also support anybody who basically wants to progress at any level on a one-to-one basis. So how can people get in touch with you? Oh, so, yeah, so I've been doing this thing um, of one-to-one tutoring uh, online uh, via Zoom, and all people do drop me an email uh, or find me on Facebook. I'm, I'm really easy to find. And um, yeah, that's it's become like a day job. I'm doing, I've, clo- I've, I've, I've um, capped it now at 25 hours a week because I'm back performing. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing 25 hours of tutoring and then my normal weekend gigs. So it's pretty, pretty full on comedy world at the minute. Uh, I really like it because I do it one-to-one that every single one is different. That I, I, I think I've had, I worked it out recently since since last th- all through lockdown i think i've had a hundred over 150 clients and none of them have been the same when we got initially the people that had done comedy workshops sounded the same but once we got past that none of them were the same the diversity around the comedy scene is unbelievable if only people know to, to let it out um so yeah so it's fascinating work absolutely fascinating Brilliant. And so you've got your Liverpool tonight. You've got your circus um, act going on tour. So how can people follow you? Is the best way through Facebook and on the Internet? Have you got all your shows publicised there? Yeah, so we're going to put that tour up as soon as it starts booking. We've got the first bookings today. First bookings came in today. And um, so we just decided that we were going to do it because normally we would be in Australia. So the guy's called Logie Logan that I do the double act with. And normally we would be in Australia, January, February, March, April for their fringe season. So that's Perth in Western Australia, Adelaide and then Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's no way they're going to let us go to Australia now. Yeah. So we suddenly thought, well, what will we do? Well, why don't we do a, a UK and Ireland tour? And it's it's starting to come in. So it'll be all on Facebook and it'll be on the website at, at some point. Um, but yeah, so a, easy to find. Brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
been a podcast recording, a whole lot of comedy.